Greetings and welcome to Dead for Filth. I'm your host, Michael Verratti, and this is the podcast for all things queer horror and beyond. I'm excited today to welcome to the studio a man who has made the first bear slasher, as far as I know, and we're going to make our Halloween season a little hairier because of it. Welcome, George Aaron Clymer, to the show. Well, thank you, Michael, and thank you for having me on. I'm going to start things off with the same question I ask every guest, and it's simply this. Why horror? Uh, What's your point of reference? What drew you to this? However you choose to interpret the question. Why horror? I think I was really, really drawn as a hobbyist to special effects makeup, um, specifically by the uh, 1978-1979 Salem's Lot, um, with the exception of the the lead master vampire. I think as a director, I might have moved the teeth myself. But, um, you know, with the video effects and everything that they really kind of were pulling off at the time and how creative they could get with that, I think that's what really drew me in with the open creative thing, especially when uh, later on I watched The Evil Dead and you get to see all the crazy camera shake movements. They had that rig that went right through the window and it just kind of really was like, wow, you can really kind of go somewhere and do something crazy with this stuff. So your first interest was effects. What was that something that you initially thought you might want to get into as effects work? Um, yeah, kind of originally I was thinking that I might want to get into uh, special effects makeup. And then things started really kind of leading into the digital age and becoming more CGI and things like that. And I honestly, I got my hands on a couple of prosumer and then a couple of professional cameras. And from there, I just kind of fell in love with the actual like operation of it. Uh, I've never actually gotten to talk to a guest about this before, but there is sort of a line in the sand between horror fans uh, as to whether they prefer practical or CGI effects. And because you seem to have an interest in the world of special effects, what are your thoughts on on that kind of crossover? Well, I I think that there's um, things and problems with each. Uh, When you're running in 4K, um, you can run into a lot of issues with makeup and practical effects. Um, but at the same time, if you don't have the budget to actually pull off CGI, ergo, it's going to look just as bad as the other. So I personally, I, I can see the merit of having both, right. using both or just using one or the other. It really just comes down to what you're trying to accomplish with the film itself. And you listed Salem's Lot and Evil Dead as early influences specifically because of effects and makeup. But as a filmmaker, what were the movies that really spoke to you story-wise? Story-wise? Um, you know, I've, I've got such a huge list, Michael, of those. But um, if I'm going to jump right on, let's, let's keep with the Halloween theme and we'll just go with uh, Hocus Pocus. You know, it was a great one. Mm-hmm. Um, George A. Romero. Uh, the original Night of the Living Dead, um, and his remake, uh, Day of the Dead. We were fantastic. Um, The story arcs and everything that were really involved with those really kind of like brought you to the edge of your seat and kept you there with just enough breath to keep you alive (laughs) while you're watching. I think the thing that's interesting, too, about Romero uh, is how he was able to weave social issues into 
his horror. Like when you look at the original Night of the Living Dead, it was made right at a time when the civil rights movement was at the forefront of discussion, and he cast an African-American lead when no one else was really doing it. Dawn of the Dead comes out and is set in a mall and feels like an indictment on consumer culture. Day of the Dead, which you referenced, is an underground military bunker. And there is uh, a whole military industrial complex kind of commentary that happens. Do you think that horror is important as a social commentary? Um, I think that very often we can utilize it a lot more than other genres of film. And the reason why is, as I said, you have a lot more creative freedom and license with um, horror films. I mean, I think a really good representation of that would be Tales from the Crypt. Mm -hmm. Um, They definitely went really risque with a lot of the humor in that show. Um, And I think that, you know, very often we find that horror films tend to kind of follow a social trend of what's acceptable and what's not acceptable in the world. Because you'll notice nowadays with some horror films, people will do things that they would have done in a 1970s or 1980s horror film and they would have died because they did that. Right. You know, such as like losing virginity or the nerd or et cetera, et cetera. Nowadays, you can have that character and they can do those things and it's less morally questionable depending on what they're doing. Well, I think there's also kind of a through line that we don't talk about when it comes, especially with the if you have sex, you die situation. Because if you look at the the horror movies of the 70s, there's a lot of sex. Right. People are having sex all the time. And then all of a sudden the 80s happen and that rule's instituted. And it's very rarely discussed. And maybe I'm off base, but it's something that I've, I've noticed. And I think on a queer horror podcast, it's worth talking about is that the rise of the 80s with the you have sex, you die kind of goes parallel with the rise of the AIDS crisis. And so I think that there is a uh, a queer read of this sort of social message when a government's ignoring us and a president isn't talking about it. Uh, artists are doing what they can, I suppose, yeah. to maybe... Well, as you look at every everything that pulled off of that is Freddie Mercury and everything going through that whole chunk of time in our own uh, civil rights movements. Right. Um, not just going off of uh, color and creed and stuff, but we did have very large movement begin again right around that time absolutely so it definitely influenced a lot of that i think that's kind of on top of that kind of why we ended up with um nightmare on elm street 2 the second one it was kind of right at that time frame where they could kind of get a little bit more across the screen with it right the gayest movie of all time (laughs) (laughs) so you Make this film, Bear Creek, which I referred to in, as far as I know, the first bear slasher film. Um, but talk about your road to becoming a filmmaker from a, uh, a kid who was watching horror films and interested in effects. And you said you got a camera and decided, oh, maybe I'll make a movie. Right. But it does, it's never that easy. No. At what point did you in your daily life stop watching movies and say, I want to make movies? What Was there a turning point? Um. I'm I'm not exactly sure exactly where it would be pinpointed, but um, I know that somewhere along the lines when Jurassic Park came out, um, that's super. Everybody was super obsessed with dinosaurs. They're still to this day, right? Super obsessed with dinosaurs, and 
wanting to kind of also pursue science and other things, I kind of got interested in that. Mm-hmm. Well, one day I kind of just woke up and realized that this man had like inspired me to inspire people. Right. Because he had inspired me to really check this paleontology stuff out and kind of learn more science and et cetera, et cetera. Right. So this one day I just kind of decided, you know, mentally, I guess that all the dinosaurs are pretty much dug up. So, (laughs) well, the reason why I wanted to do that was because of this. Ergo, maybe what I really want to do is inspire people to do things too. Via film. Yeah. And we met at Comic-Con this year. You were on my Queer Fear panel. Mm Mm-hmm. And one of the things we talked about, because we discussed the queer relationship with the horror genre, and uh, you and I sort of dug into the notion that while the LGBTQ community is getting more visibility in film than ever before, the bear community seems to still sometimes not get enough of a spotlight. So talk to me a little bit about the choice to make a bear movie, and... um, just the challenges of that and, you know, the, the politics of it, I right. think, cause I think it's very interesting and very needed. Right. Well, you know, there's a lot of different aspects that go into the strifes and struggles that you're going to have making a bear film in general. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of that is, you know, you're, you are going into a niche market. So your target market is smaller. It's not necessarily the entire encompassment of the LGBT community, which is something that was important to me to kind of include in general. So I did have to, you know, as much as I knew that it was going to be a bear movie and it's bear oriented, I had to include other things to kind of get those other target markets. I quickly learned. Um, and I think one of the biggest reasons outside of like, just really as a filmmaker, I needed to get something out there. Right. Um, I've always been told over and over and over by every instructor I've ever had, by every filmmaking buddy I've ever had, by every documentary you'll ever watch about how this movie became whatever. They always say, write what you know and do it because you want to do it. Right. So I love horror and I just I threw a film together and kind of wrote it around things that you actually see in our community. Right. Um, and, you know, going forward with that, you know, the super, super small market again. So you're looking at casting issues with that. You're not necessarily going to have as many people to pull from actor-wise. You're not going to have necessarily the following for those actors because, unfortunately, you know, um, Hollywood and the rest of the industry has made a really good job at making certain things being what is considered sexy by the majority. It's like a forced aesthetic that we all just kind of buy into. Exactly. Right. And, you know, you 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 even have that in the bear community, mm-hmm. as sad as it is. Um, and you find ways to keep creating clicks and things to kind of orientate us. And, you know, you you really have to, like, look into that, you know. And because of how small of a niche it was, I found there wasn't a lot of pro- uh, professional actors for me to actually hire on. Right. For those roles. So in the end, I ended up using some non-actors and other things, you know, a lot of indies end up having to do because of those things. Well, there aren't really a lot of movies centered around the bear community. I can only think of a few. Did you have any points of reference when you were going into this or you just, you know, took the horror formula and decided to 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 plug some bears in? I kind of took the horror formula and just plugged some bears in. However, I mean, 
I was inspired by watching the success of like Bear City mm-hmm. and a couple of other LGBT films of uh, more recent times. And I kind of decided, you know, I've been involved with the LGBT community for a very long time. I've been involved with the film community for a very long time. So I kind of just pulled the resources that I had. Right. And uh, it just kind of made sense. It made sense for me to make a bear movie at that time. Right. Now, one of the things I talk about with a lot of guests on the show is the importance of representation. And uh, I think specifically we, when this comes up, we just talk about general representation. Like, is it, you know, how important is it to you to make sure that the work that you create represents our community or represents, you know, minorities or women or et cetera. But I want to go one step further. I want to talk to you about that. But also, do you think the LGBT community, as far as film is going, is it doing enough to represent the truly diverse swath of people who exist in the LGBT world. Because if you look at a lot of gay movies, as you pointed out, there is a very specific body type or a certain kind of gay guy that's represented or a kind of lesbian that's represented. So clearly representation is important, but we need more, I'm assuming. Right. I feel that we need, as a community, to try to open it up a little bit more. Because, you know, my director of photography and me were actually discussing a lot of these type of things when we were discussing actually making the film Bear Creek. And once we got further into production, we continued to have it as a discussion. We were, in fact, starting um, hashtags and things like LGBT straight alliance and things like that just to kind of show that we do have more support in the industry than is really necessarily really out there. Right. Um, But you're right. They always pull specific stereotypes and they never really represent the wallflowers or the normal, like, I guess, grouping. Right. You know, and because of that, I feel that we're not necessarily making the move either because when we go to make a movie, we tend to do the same thing as they do because we want it to be successful rather than take the risk and actually represent ourselves. But if someone doesn't break the mold, then it's never going to change. Did you face uh, any issues submitting this film to festivals at all? Um, I actually, uh, I mean, you know, I've I've submitted somewhat to certain things that kind of fast-tracked it into um, the market. Mm -hmm. Um, Rather than going the whole film festival route, I just really didn't see the point. Right. Um, there is a lot of point and merit to getting into film festivals and things like that. But I think something drove me to want the world to see this project faster than it to be, you know, talked and jumped up. But over time, I have submitted it to some film festivals. And, um, you know, outside of its indie nature and its few faults there, um, I think that we do have a little bit more difficulty than some of the other LGBT films getting accepted. Um, not exactly sure why. <laughs> well, I've seen the movie and I think it's a lot of fun. Uh, and I recommend horror fans and fans of bears and fans of everything. Go, go check it out. Uh, and you mentioned the indie nature of this film and you shot this in Colorado, correct? Yep. So you m- make this bare bones kind of feature. You take people who you describe essentially as non-actors and then you go to Colorado, were some of them Chicago, uh, Chicago, Colorado natives already? Yep. Uh, a good chunk of my crew was, um, and most, 
In fact, actually, all of my actors except for one were. Um, I flew out an actor from San Diego, um, and then I flew out Dante from Los Angeles and myself from California as well and kind of pulled everything else because my, my whole experience in film and everything uh, life-wise started in Colorado. So it made sense to go back to home base since I didn't have necessarily the pull that I needed out here to pull it off as well. And because this movie follows this, the kind of slasher Friday the 13th sort of notion of being out in the woods and being besieged by uh, a killer... Exterior shots are difficult, even for big productions. So I imagine there were some challenges filming it. And before I get into that, you brought a special guest today yeah. with you. Uh, would you like to introduce yourself? Of course. Hi, everybody. My name is Julio Martinez Valle, and I'm glad to be here joining you. Well, well thank you for, for popping in. And what was it you did on Bear Creek? Well, uh, mainly I did or uh, marketing, mm-hmm. um, social media, like Facebook, Twitter, um, you know, sending for some festivals too. Um, what else did I do? No, were you on set in Colorado? No, I wasn't. Okay, so one, I, I want to talk to you both a little bit about the rollout of this film, but I want to ask you: Were there difficulties shooting out in the wilderness? Um, a good chunk of my audio, for sure, got um, botched by wind. You know, we get botched out by cicadas. Um, <laughs> Birds weren't necessarily that big of an issue. Um, a lot of the night scenes, you know, and then you got crickets and things like that. Mm-hmm. And um, the irony here is, as well, is we were only, as we we were pretty deep in the woods in Colorado, and we were um, probably about three ish miles away from a slaughterhouse. Oh, so you know, randomly throughout the day, you'd hear a cow get, get slaughtered, <laughs> slaughtered. Oh, which, no. of course, you know, I'm the only guy walking around on a set. No, who knows what that noise is? Because I grew up out there in in the woods, right? And um, you know, a lot of the rest of the people I had brought out were all like Denver, you know, city folk and stuff like that. They get so out they there, they know. don't know what that noise is. So about three days in, I have to explain this to them, <laughs> and about four or five of them quit eating meat for the majority of production <laughs> so Julio aren't you glad you got to stay home sort of <laughs> <laughs> it was you know bare bones set you're out in the middle of the woods um did you sleep out there RVing. too yeah we had campers um cars and you know tents and it was literally bare bones we we're out there our uh the unfortunate truth is that the actual quality of the production level itself um definitely showed Mm-hmm. However, you know, everybody stuck through it and really like came together as a team over it. And it definitely I don't think that we would have gotten what we have and how good it is where it stands. Right. Had we had the luxuries, I don't think it would have brought us as close net to actually accomplish it in the amount of time that we did. But that's that bare bones indie spirit of filmmaking that really kind of is the backbone of the horror genre. So many people yeah. just kind of go out there and do it. And uh, that you made a movie and finished it is way more than a lot of people get to say. And it's such a fun film, too. Well, the iron here, actually, is that I can actually officially say that I've made my money back. Oh, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> or, well, we've made our money back. It is quite fun. Uh, so now that the movie's done, and I'm going to ask Julio this question, because you do the marketing, 
Yes. What's the response been like? You've seen, uh, I'm sure you interact with people on social media. Yes. Well, we've had a couple of screenings over some bars in San Diego. Mm -hmm. And people, like, we've had pretty interesting reactions. Like, they get into them and have, I might add, that um, this is a showing without audio so it's just like captions oh. and people are like so into it and then reacting there oh no this and oh no that and don't go there you know so it's interesting how people react to that and then also um i can't really measure how people react on social media because you know it's just either a like or like a quick comment or you know um i mean if it were to you know somehow measure it it's by people being engaged Mm -hmm. On, like, sharing the post or, you know, like, uh, just uh, showing up where the events are, you know, like the screenings and all that stuff. So I think that's kind of like how you measure if you're doing a good marketing job, if people are, you know, getting the word out, you know. Engaging with the film. I'm really interested in the idea of a screening that's captions only because I've heard a lot of... uh, I've heard of a lot of wild screenings that people have had for their films, but that's a first. Right. Well, you know, um, uh, again, when they say write what you know and, uh, you know, bring in what you know to accomplish something great, the truth is is, uh, the best target market for a bear slasher film is uh, the irony is gay bear bars. Right. So this is very easy. You know, everybody's already there. Um, you don't want to necessarily interrupt the music or anything else, but, you know, you can show the film three times mm-hmm. and have three different time segments and captions, which I might also add, coming from the independent standpoint, when you have a, some rough audio. Right. It's great because then everybody's seeing the film for its whole worth. That's Rather true. than not hearing the film for its whole worth. Well, and speaking of bars, you uh, you curate or DJ uh, a, a event in San Diego. Is this something that you do? I see you post about uh, a bar event. Well, so I actually um, am currently picked up Brick Bar in T-Deli as a marketing client. And okay. I happen to bartend there on Fridays, and I'm trying to basically just help them get back into the groove of having a more... Um, A steady flow of customer and clientele, I guess. But I recently saw that they were screening their uh, right. Evil Dead, and yeah. I, I feel like that's your influence. You no, yeah, to- <laughs> I, I now have no, 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 it totally is. Um, I definitely have got a movie night going there now. Um, right, I think you're downplaying so, your involvement yeah, here. Like, well, you know, <laughs> and take all of the credit away from Alex, the owner who's had it for about 15 years. The establishments are great; and they're in great locations. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they've. They've got some struggles that a lot of the bars in that area are having with getting cabaret licenses and things like that with the community around them. And, you know, again, it comes down to, like, just amount of support and people and things like that. So I guess I downplay it because I'm not really doing that for myself. Sure. I'm doing it for the bar and for the community and for my friend Alex. But I also think anytime you bring horror movies to the people, it is a community service. So (laughs) I'm sure people are are grateful. And you are very active on the scene in San Diego. Uh, We recently spoke about uh, an event that you're doing in March. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it's actually called the Screamless Screams Film Festival, which will actually be held at Brick Bar. It was originally held at Numbers Nightclub. 
and unfortunately they have closed for business um, mm-hmm. and will soon open to become a restaurant of some sort. I'm not exactly sure, um, but that's the rumor as it were. Um, but yeah, so I've got basically a movie style dinner theater film festival night okay. and um, it's all local California filmmakers. Um, I bring some guest films in from other fests that I hold or host around the country. And, um, you know, the really whole entire point of it is to really network the local communities and get the local community to see the films that the local filmmakers are making at the same time. Now, you said you host festivals other places? Yep. Tell me about that. Um, well, I've been hosting one in particular called the My Bloody Valentine Film Festival in Denver for 10 years now. Mm-hmm. And um, it's had a wild, wild amount of success. It's um, actually hosted either the weekend before or the weekend preceding um, Valentine's Day, depending on where Valentine's Day actually falls okay. um, and what's going on. But I host it over at the Buck Theater, and um, that one's a lot I get a, a lot more established and, you know, we've got, we've had a lot of fun with it over the years. Um, and again, it comes down to just having somewhere to network. And that's what kind of started the whole thing is Denver doesn't really have as much going for it necessarily when it comes to studio spaces mm-hmm. and actual networking like sites. And, you know, they didn't even really get their incentive game up until the last couple of years and they're still struggling and working with it just as much as San Diego is struggling and working with it. You know, there's a difference in levels of things. So I just kind of wanted something to bring myself more into the communities. I, I felt like a part of me was missing and it just, I had to get something going. So I started a film festival with my cousin and then he moved on to do his own things and I just kind of kept, kept it running. When I think festivals are so important for multiple for multitude of reasons because they allow filmmakers to get their work out there. Uh, because you've been doing this for long enough, have you seen a consistent thread of like challenges that face the filmmakers who submit? Um, you know, it really comes down to having an organized story. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of times you'll see some really, I guess, uh, trauma style-esque things but you know sometimes that's what you need what you right. want to see we love so drama here <laughs> we work we work and we try to see what you get so you know i don't see a lot of uh problems or threats when people submit into my fests right um, which actually both of them are actually open for submission right now and you can get on that train by looking at www.razorbellproductions.com oh great so if you're out there and a filmmaker and you uh, are looking to places to submit send it george's way uh, so I want to shift some gears a bit on our panel at Comic-Con this year, we had some lively discussion and one of the things that came up and one of the things that has consistently come up with some of the guests across, uh, the show of, over the last few weeks is sort of how horror is changing and the reaction to the genre to the current state of politics. And I remember someone, it might've been me actually asked, how do you see horror films changing in Trump's America. And you said something very poignant, and that was... And it, it, it was you, and there's video of it. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> no, I uh, I looked up, and I just... 
I immediately kind of felt something in my stomach and remembered that this is nobody's America, but the people's America. So I asked, excuse me, right. But who's America? Cause the last time I remember it was owned by the people, right? Which I'm sorry. I, I stole the limelight from you at that moment there for a second. Um, no, that's why at the Comic Con panel. Why we have panelists? Uh, but I think that's such an important point because I think that in the news cycle we tend to forget that we do have some agency left. Right. And um, so I, I think that that was a very strong moment, and I, I'm interested in that from the the standpoint of the genre because I think there is a lot of reactionary art out there. But how do you think art? Can, can keep momentum and control in a tumultuous political time. Right. Well, you know, I think the irony here actually is, is that it's not supposed to. Right. I think art is supposed to be reflective, mm-hmm. and oftentimes it breathes and speaks in a language of its own. Right. So when things around us become turbulent, you tend to express that in art. And the beautiful thing about that is, is that it can help other people change their views and change their things. So I think, you know, hopefully in the end of it all, if we get anything good out of these turbulent political times, it will be that, you know, maybe it will, America will wake up and become more active and become more, Involved with its communities and with voting and with making sure that things like this don't ever happen again. Right. Knock on wood, fingers crossed. <laughs> uh, you grew up in rural Colorado. Um, could you tell me a little bit about what that's like growing up in small town America and knowing that you're gay? It, but did you have struggles with that? It was. It was absolutely terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you know, a lot of my family is from the South on top of that, from Gary, Indiana and Georgia and Mississippi and, you know, um, only the most, so liberal, was, yeah, of the most <laughs> liberal of places on yeah. the planet. <clears throat> so, you know, between that and a lot of the problems that come with areas like that, um, it was just, it was very, very frightening. Mm hmm. However, the irony here is that I was actually scaring myself for very little reason. Um, I started slowly coming out to people when I turned 17. Um, in fact, uh, basically, I came out to like three of my best friends and like was accepted by them. So I felt a little bit more secure in things that were going on in my life. And um, I was actually uh, hanging out a lot with Heather White, which was the co-writer on my bear film. And she inevitably asked me out, actually, and I told Aww. her that I was, I told her I was gay, and she did not take that well. <laughs> <laughs> I love you, Heather. I really do. But she did not take that well and basically outed me to the majority of the student body. Um, and then you so, wrote a movie together. No, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we wrote a movie. That's a well, movie like I years later. <laughs> well, it was like years later. No, it was crazy, you know, and... You know, we grow up, we all make mistakes and we grow up, but, mm-hmm. you know, she's never outside of any of that. She's never done anything, you know? Right. So, you know, that's just kid stuff. It sure. Teenager overreaction when we got past it. But, you know, after that, I um, came out to 
um, several different family members and things like that. And, you know, I had a variety of different reactions. Mm -hmm. Nothing really super bad. I didn't, like, get kicked out of my house or, like, lose my place to live or anything, you know. Right. I already had a pretty turbulent, like, teenage angsty period in my life. Me and my dad were you know, ruffians, like we'd get (laughs) out in the backyard with our dukes up and things like that. Um, So having watched, you know, my parents, I guess, go from like that almost iffy, like not okay to where they are now, Mm -hmm. I think is much more of what impresses me about it. Because as much as my story, like, oh, well, yeah, it's nothing. Right. I don't have one of those. I came out and my world toppled to pieces. Right. No, I came out and people were uncomfortable for like three months and then they got used to it. And now like they're at the point where like they tend to call my boyfriends more than I, they call me (laughs) (laughs) and things like that. So, you know, like I didn't really get that. You know what I think is interesting and, and we don't talk about it as a community enough is that the coming out process when it comes to our family is usually a twofold thing, but we always tend to think of it on our side only. No, yeah, we're terrified. We don't yeah. think about, you know, we only think that they're, the worst is going to happen. We tend to, especially right. as filmmakers, oh, yeah. well, because we're brainwashed to think that everything wrong is going to go wrong. <laughs> it ain't our, if, our, it's, our it's our going to. go to drama, like heightened drama. Right? But no, I think it's true because when you like go through that whole range of emotions, I think especially for our generation where it just like either wasn't talked about or like it was always like a negative reaction in media or something. Um, you had to like build up yourself and you could have spent months, years, like finally like getting the strength to tell people. And then there's this weird space that a lot of of, uh, people who come out go into that, like, now I'm living my truth and you have to accept it. But like, you forget it took you years to come to terms with this yourself. So you at least have to give mom and dad some time to kind of get there too. No, Uh, Yeah, but you walk into that situation with all that time and energy and angst and then you go, mom, I'm gay. And your mom goes, I already knew you were different. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, okay, mom. (laughs) You're like, well, you know, you build it up (laughs) and then you got this little tiny, like poof of a response out of it. You're like, this was my moment. (laughs) What are you doing? Yeah. Like you expect it to be as epic as kicking down the Berlin wall or something, (laughs) you know? (laughs) It's so true. Now, have you, uh, has your family seen Bear Creek? Um, yeah. Several of my family members have seen it. I also have sent my parents a copy that has two particular scenes not <laughs> oh there's a mom and dad at it yeah <laughs> um, my I, I i love a good uh edit of a film that's kind of egregious like i of course don't like censorship but um do you remember when cabin fever came out on dvd did you yeah. did there's a family cut of cabin fever and the special features and it's five minutes long all right, well, uh, shifting back from less serious topics, because Cabin Fever is very serious, um, it is kind of the end of the Halloween month, so uh, let's let's talk about Halloween. What are some traditions that you have? What do you like to do in the month of October? And Julio, I didn't just bring you in as a cameo to talk about marketing, so please join us on this as well. Uh, you know, what, what are you doing for the Halloween season? What do you like to do? I definitely want to try to hit up uh, Universal Studios 
of course. Um, but Halloween Horror Nights. Yes, Halloween Horror Nights. <laughs> you know? <laughs> but uh, I've got some really cool stuff going over at Brick Bar. We're going to be raffling stuff off. Um, they've got the Nightmare on Normal Street um, that I'm going to check out as well. I'm going to check out the Balboa. Um, horror trail. Yeah, Horror Trail or, or Haunted Trail at Balboa Park. And these are Park. all San Diego events. Yeah, there's some <laughs> San Diego ones. And then, um, you know, tomorrow I'm going to end up going to Gay Days at Disney, and they've already got their Halloween stuff going. So I'm really excited about that. But to be 100% honest, I'm like super obsessive with haunted houses. Like, yeah. I want to try to get as many of them in as possible. But, you know, with that said, as a horror filmmaker and a horror buff, mm-hmm. I tend to not have as much time as I would like in October. Same. Uh, I always uh, think of Buffy the Vampire Slayer around Halloween yeah. in, in the way that uh, in the in the mythology of the show, October 31st is the one day that all the monsters take off because it's like some sort of a thing where they like, you know, Halloween is a day of rest. Vampires don't kill anyone on Halloween. And uh, I think of it like when you work in horror and it's the genre you live in, I of course will like go to a party or maybe do a costume. But like by the time October is done, and I love this, I live for Halloween. I live for Halloween all year round. But like on October 31st, everyone's like, yeah, Halloween. I'm like, I can't wait for November. (laughs) I'm going to sleep for a week. How about about you? What do you? Well, um, for me, it's a little bit different. Okay. I'm, I was born and raised in Tijuana, so I'm full-on Mexican. Um, I've always enjoyed that's Halloween. A, that's important. Well, I mean, that's kind of like the backstory of my story. Yeah, so yeah. that's <laughs> leading on to. Uh, so I've always, I'm also into Halloween and mm-hmm. like, you know, the whole horror genre and stuff. Right. But in my culture is November the second, the Day of the Dead. Right. So this is when we pay our respects to our uh, deceased ones. Right. And we have our own traditions and rituals to you know do that. Right. Um, and me being like living in Tijuana and because I have family here in LA and uh, in Houston and all kind of some parts of the U.S. I kind of have this. Uh, bicultural right. uh, type of traditions and stuff. So I kind of see Halloween, the pre-party, to celebrate the ones that are already gone and then, you know, ha- give them their actual um, respect. ritual yeah. respects mm-hmm. and, you know, kind of like we're hanging out, we're, you know, dressing up and having fun and stuff. And then comes, like, the serious part, the grown-up part where you sure. have to, like, sit, like, you know, sit the... Uh, they're, they're, uh, day of the bread, day of the dead bread and coffee and all that you know tradition Although that we I Mexicans do. Like the idea of a day of the bread because we're <laughs> like we're, here in Los Angeles we don't acknowledge carbs as much as we should and bread is everything. <laughs> there actually is a day, no? It's a, yeah, that's true. You know, like a, I got an opinion about that carb thing myself. Uh, don't we all? Well, I'm an Italian kid. I grew up with only carbs, so no, it's, yeah, yeah. we <laughs> eat bread for thousands of years and then. Suddenly, we're allergic to it. Okay, well, that, <laughs> okay. that's a whole okay. different discussion. Uh, I do have to ask because I've always been interested, especially in Southern California, because we have such kind of a cro- uh, cultural crossing point here. You see a lot of melding of Halloween and Day of the Dead, um, but they are very different in how how they are celebrated. And I wonder, for uh, Mexican culture, do 
how is Halloween received? Is it do you, is there like maybe like an, an issue with the proliferation into Halloween with with kind of the the American Western world? Um, it, I think it depends on how like the background of families mm-hmm. like us in the border because we are in a, more, a border we have that trade of cultures and right. you know so it's easier for us to, to like take in uh, the side of culture you know what I mean yeah but down south it's more serious it's like no Halloween does not exist or they, they don't even they know about it but they don't really engage into it right it's just like the day of the dead and then that's it for them but like for us like or like let's say Thanksgiving like nobody celebrates Thanksgiving over in Mexico but we like in TJ because we have that right uh we're super near so we kind of adopt these kind of uh I want to say uh, holidays. Right. And then we do them because it's something that we're just kind of like looking out the window. Oh, they're doing this. Okay. It <laughs> seems like fun. Let's do it. Yes. You know what I mean? Um, but I mean, Halloween for us, it's it's uh, something that, or the way I see it, um, it's kind of like the pre-party before the actual serious ritual for the dead. I, I appreciate that. I have to say, I'm a Hall- uh, not a Hall- a Thanksgiving Scrooge. Uh, I think I'm the only person. Well, I'm sure there are a lot of people who don't like it for many cultural reasons. But I just, even just bare bones, have always felt like it's the definitive American holiday in the way that we're supposed to be celebrating what we're thankful for by eating way more than we ever would. It's like very like. <laughs> You know, capitalistic, I guess. It is. Very super capitalistic holiday. So we're going to ignore that turkey and get back to Halloween. Uh, I, <laughs> you know. uh, I have to ask, because this is a film-oriented show, what, uh, and I'll put this question to both of you, what's something you like to watch at Halloween? What's a, what's a, a Halloween definitive viewing? Evil Dead, one, two, three. Have you been watching the show? Army of Darkness. I love the show. Me too. So I have good. things to say. That's a whole other episode of this. Right. <laughs> I want to dig into it. I love, I love everything that's going on. I love Lucy Lawless. I love Pablo. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, For me, um, well, ever since I was little uh, with my aunts from my dad's side, they were a big horror fans and they had this, uh, like, I don't remember. I was like five or six years old. But they used to gather up and then have like a horror movie night or whatever. Mm-hmm. So I think there's where I kind of started to, you know, get into the whole horror. And I remember the first horror movie that I saw was um, The Exorcist. Wow. That's a like way and, to go hard, like early. Yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> I, I don't, I like. So is that or the. I, yeah. <laughs> I don't remember, remember even flinching about it. Probably because mm-hmm. I wasn't like not aware what was it about or whatever yeah. but up until this day I see it and I'm like wow that's a really good well done movie do you right. know what I mean because there's a lot of production into it and coming from that time where technology was kind of like for movies or sets or whatever it was just kind of like starting to develop I guess Yeah. so when now as an adult I, 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 I saw it again and then I went through the features and all this stuff that they do, and I'm like, whoa, they had, you know, they had really cool things going on. You know, what's crazy is I think in the run of this show so far, this is the first time The Exorcist has been mentioned, which is wild because it's such a, a pivotal film. Yeah, I- it was huge, yeah. And I, I want to jump on this real quick because I mean that's definitely on the to go list, but or to do list for Halloween, I, I should say. Um, 
But, you know, it's like the classics that everybody does, Nightmare, Before Christmas, the Hocus Pocus, you know, you got to watch all those. And then right. maybe some Tales from the Crypt. But, I mean, you know, people tend to forget about those classics. Yeah. The Universal Studios classics. You I know, know. Wolfman, Frankenstein, Dracula. Um, I revisit most of the Hammer movies during yeah. the week. Yeah, those are my, my Halloween. Like, the more gothic it is, the more Halloween. Because I watch horror movies all year round. Right. So, like, what sets the mood for Halloween? I like the Universal ones, though. Uh I, I can get into um, some Dracula. Yeah, what's actually a good universal cut that's applicable to Dead for Filth listeners is Dracula's Daughter. Because right. it's, no, yeah, that one's a good one. Yeah, it's pretty lesbo. Right? <laughs> um, I it, mean, aren't all vampire movies kind of touching on, you know, the gay subject? Because, they I mean, they fool around with each other, but they're not it, but they're still doing it. So well, it's like, just vampires in general are very, <laughs> very sexualized in general. In right. fact, actually... Um, Historically speaking, Bela Lugosi was upset at how old he was when he recorded it because he had been doing it on Broadway right. and other stage performances for so long. And mm-hmm. he was always revered as this very sexual creature. Right. And on top of that, he was a very, very handsome man when he was younger. Well, right. he didn't feel so much. So when he went into the second one, you know, a couple of us may agree. But <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, he was, you know, one very definitive Dracula. I'm a Christopher Lee guy. I think it's probably because of, of Hammer. Um, but I also believe that you'd be seduced by Christopher Lee. Like, I, right. there's something about Bela Lugosi, like, no disrespect, that you're right. Maybe it could it could be just that he was long in the tooth by the time he hit the screen. But right. Christopher Lee walks in. I'm like, yes, take me, Fang Daddy. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, okay. Fang me, Daddy. <laughs> so what's next for you? What's coming up? Um, well, currently I'm in pre-production for Bear Creek 2. Ooh. Um, I'm also uh, in pre-production for a noir vampire film called Dead at Night. Okay. Um, which is a very, very fun detective noir film. Cool. Well, I look forward to that, and uh, see, I like the, the vampire transition there that we had. Yeah, I know. It was really convenient for me. <laughs> and uh, I'll be interested to uh, see you. Are you going to go back to the woods for Bear Creek 2, or is this an urban harvest? No, it's urban. <laughs> oh, that's so great. We're going to be shooting this one in San Diego. Blake will have uprooted his life, and he has a uh, you know, new set of friends. Oh, I may have to just wander on down to San San Diego while this is going on to have a peek. Uh, Well, you know, uh, where can people find you? Um, You can find me at georgeclimber.com. You can find me at raiserbellproductions.com on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, the works. Um, And you can find my film Bear Creek on Amazon Prime. And you can watch it for free if you have Prime. Excellent. Well... I'm sad to say that we are nearing the end of the show, but as always, I would like to give you the opportunity. Is there anything else that you would like to impart to our listeners out there in the dark? You know, I would really like to make sure that you guys all have a wonderful, hairy Halloween. You have a a voice for radio. I know, right? (laughs) Um, George, thank you so much for joining us. And Julio, thanks for being our first surprise guest. We've never had a surprise cameo on the show before. Thank you for having me here and making me part of everything. Oh, I'm so so glad to have you both. Thanks again. Uh, This has been Dead for Filth. I'm Michael Verratti. Yours always in glam and gore. Good night and good luck.
Dead for Filth is a Reverie Studios original production and can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud, as well as the Reverie app for the best in queer-rated entertainment.